Urban Agorist Podcast. My name is James, and today I am excited to bring you Scott Horton. Scott is, of course, the great foreign policy expert and needs really no introduction. The reason I asked Scott to come on the show was because I recently did a poll in a Facebook group full of libertarians, and as it turns out, most people are in the same boat as I am in 2020. We haven't really been following... Uh, foreign policy news at all, and and since every you know libertarian luminary, including Murray Rothbard and Ron Paul, say that foreign policy, war and peace are really the most important libertarian issues, um, I thought I would have Scott on to kind of give us a give us a fill in on what's been going on for the last year and what we can expect to see in a Biden administration. Um, Obviously, if you've listened to Scott before, you know that when you schedule an hour, you're going to get a chock full of content hour. So I wasn't able to get to all the questions that I wanted to. Um, Maybe we'll have him on again in the future to talk about his book and to kind of catch us up again. But in the meantime, without further ado, please enjoy my interview with Scott Horton. Scott, excited to be talking to you today. Thanks for joining me. Happy to be here. Um, so I guess probably everybody knows who you are, but why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself just uh, in case there is one or two people who've never heard of you before. <laughs> um, I'm sure there are a lot more than that. Um, well, so I'm the editorial director of antiwar.com and I'm the uh, director of the Libertarian Institute. And I wrote the book Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. And I host Antiwar Radio on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A., and also a podcast called The Scott Horton Show, which is also various radio shows and so forth going back. And that's uh, 5,400 and something interviews all at scotthorton.org and the archives there. Oh, and I wrote a book called Fool's Errand about the war in Afghanistan. And I wrote another one. I'm writing. I'm almost done with another book. Oh, and also, um, well, anyway, uh, my new one is called Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And it's almost done. And I also publish a book called The Great Ron Paul, which is transcripts of 30 interviews that I did with Ron Paul between 2004 and 2019. I think that's everything. Well, okay. So the reason I wanted to have you on the show, um, I, I am kind of in the Tom Woods circle and I did a poll in his Facebook group, which is now on MeWe. And I, the, the question basically was like, have you been following foreign policy this year? Um, and how aware are you of what's been going on? And I would say 80% haven't been following the news at all. And another good chunk only have sort of a partial understanding. Um, With COVID and the kind of craziness that's been surrounding that, people have sort of just ignored everything else. And being that everyone knows that war and peace is the most important thing, um, I'd love to kind of have you fill us in on what's been going on this year. Um, I know there's been some like peace treaties with Israel and stuff like that, that just really nobody knows about. Uh, and then in addition to that, obviously the, the ongoing wars and, um, genocides and stuff like that, that we're probably going to be hearing more about as COVID ramps down and the Biden administration ramps up. I mean, I guess just, you know, a quick overview is we still have a couple of thousand troops in Afghanistan. And Trump blinked. He did not order a full withdrawal. He he did sign a deal um, last February to get us out by the this coming May, but he'll be out of power by then. Plenty of time for 
Biden to change that, and he's vowed to stay. Um, didn't Trump? Didn't Trump recently set a goal of having everybody out by Christmas, though? Or is there any hope for yeah, that? Yeah, that was just a tweet, and yeah, that wasn't real. That was just campaign talk. And you know, if he'd done it over the summer, if he had ended the terror wars over the summer—Afghanistan, Somalia, Iraq, and Syria—and just pulled all our troops out, he would have won handily. Um, but he was afraid to, and so he didn't, and so he lost. And then uh, now he even appointed Douglas McGregor, who is a serious anti-interventionist, whose very sound and serious advice is to cut and run from all of these wars we shouldn't be in at all in the Middle East right now, and appointed him senior advisor to the new Secretary of Defense, and then he still blinked, the president still blinked and only ordered troops troop numbers reduced to 2500 in iraq and afghanistan which fine is fewer than before but it's not a substantive change it's not a strategic difference between where we were and where we are are they withdrawing no they're just drawing down and that's different and so we still got troops in uh, Somalia, they're also talking about drawing down in Somalia. Well, they got 700 special operations forces and infantry on the ground in Somalia, training the army and waging drone wars and going out on night raid missions against Al-Shabaab and this kind of thing. And they're talking about withdrawing them to Djibouti, the country next door, where they can just do their strikes by helicopter and drone from the country next door instead of the country that they're already in. So, you know, these kinds of changes mean that essentially the terror wars are all still ongoing. And in Iraq and Syria, in, well, in Iraq, America's embedded with the Iraqi army, still fighting what's left of the Sunni-based insurgency and threatening to get us into a fight with Iran. And I'll get back to that in a second, I guess, because that's sort of, you know, the more important kind of narrative here, I guess. In Syria... They claim they're there for uh, ISIS, but they also admit that they're not there for ISIS at all, that there's essentially nothing left of ISIS to fight there. America and our allies, the Turks, are still essentially uh, allied with al-Qaeda in the Idlib province, so that's not the problem. Uh, the reason that they're there is to hurt Iran, to hurt the um, Damascus government and, and their Iranian allies by depriving the Syrian government of their oil and making them more dependent on Iran. Which isn't that funny, because the whole intervention in Syria in the first place was to try to limit Syria's relationship with Iran. Now that they've got the opposite result, they're saying, oh yeah, no, see, that's what we want, is for them to be so dependent on Iran because it's hard on Iran's budget, and that's part of our maximum pressure campaign against Iran. And so... Um, Trump even said about Iraq, well, yeah, we're there fighting ISIS, but we're really there to keep an eye on Iran. Well, Bush Jr. already gave Baghdad to Iran's best friends there. So there's nothing America can do about that. America's embedded with them. You know, the, the Iraqi army that America fights with and for is the same Iraqi army that those Iranian-backed Shiite militias fight with and for. Um, our troops are paramilitaries of the Iraqi army in the exact same sense that those Iranian militias are, and with the same real enemies, the ISIS guys, what we used to call al-Qaeda in Iraq back during Iraq War II. Um, they're now what's left of ISIS after Iraq War III. 
Can we get super basic real quick? Um, I yeah. Who so who in the Middle East that it, that matters is Sunni? Who's Shia? Um, and which of those sects is sort of not allied with, but you know, more friendly toward the U.S. Israel alliance? Okay, so that's a, a great way to frame it. And the question is not a matter of belief; it's a matter of political allies and politics and power and oil wealth and land and not just a fight over Muhammad's son-in-law and this kind of thing although obviously that you know the Shia the Shia Sunni divide has a lot to do with um how these powers are divided in a way but that's not what they're fighting about just to make that clear you know American hawks like to hide behind that and say well you know they've been fighting for thousands of years and all that no George Bush came and set the whole region on fire in 2003. Thank you very much. And responsibility, you know, uh, lies where it lies. Um, But overall, the answer to your question is the American alliance is the United States, Saudi Arabia, and all the Arabian states. So that's Qatar and Bahrain and the United Arab Emirates. And, you know, Oman is a little bit neutral and Yemen we'll talk about in a minute. Um, but um, it also includes then Kuwait and Jordan and Turkey and Israel. And obviously Israel, they're not Sunnis, but they're part of this same alliance. Now, there are faction fights within this American-dominated order. Uh, the Turks and the Qataris favor the Muslim Brotherhood in places where the Saudis oppose them and the Saudis support them in places where the Qataris and Turks oppose them. And God knows what, you know, there's, you know, different internal politics, um, you know, going on inside that Sunni alliance. But that's overall the shape of the American side. Then on the other side, you have only nominally the Russians just to make it symmetrical, but they're not really the power behind them. Um, but they are you know, nominally aligned with the Shiite side. And the Shiite side is led by the Iranians in alliance that in an alliance which now, ever since 2003, includes Baghdad, used to not. Uh, Saddam Hussein was a Sunni minority dictator, of course. But Bush fought a five-year civil war for the Shiite supermajority side and put Iran's friends in power and made the Iraqi army out of them and everything. So they're now on the Iranian Shiite side of the ledger. And then their alliance also includes Bashar al-Assad, the Baathist um, dictatorship in Syria, which is allied with the Shiites, and also Hezbollah in southern Lebanon. And they throw in the Houthis in Yemen, but that's not really right. But we'll talk about Yemen in a minute. But that's basically the breakdown. So the American side is Saudi, Bahrain, Qatar, UAE, Kuwait, Jordan, Turkey, Israel. The Shiite side is Iran, Iraq, now Iraq, Syria, and Hezbollah. And that's what the king of Jordan called the Shiite Crescent. Thanks a lot, George W. Bush. He just created the Shiite Crescent. And so, and this is the key to understanding, and I'm very repetitive about this, but I don't know what else is more important to explain. This is the key to understanding America's Middle East policy in the last 20 years, okay? George Bush fought a war for Iran than he wished he hadn't. And then he launched an operation, a, a change in, in policy and strategy called the Redirection. 
Everybody read that article by Seymour Hirsch in the New Yorker magazine. The redirection. Read it twice. It's hilarious and tragic and crazy. And what it says is that they realize, oops, we empower the Ayatollah. So now what we want to do is tilt back toward the Saudis and the Sunnis. But what does that mean? That means supporting Al-Qaeda terrorists. You know, Saudis don't have a land army. We're their land army. And if it comes to backing you know, the Saudi agenda in the Middle East, what it means is supporting Al-Qaeda terrorists to overthrow Gaddafi in uh, Libya, although... He wasn't allied with Iran. This, they just hated him for other reasons, but it was the Saudis who wanted to do that. And then this is the very short story of the Syrian war. America allied with Saudi and Turkey backed al-Qaeda in Syria. And it was really al-Qaeda in Iraq from Iraq War II, the worst part of the Sunni insurgency in Iraq War II that America fought against while they were fighting for the Shiites. They became the moderate rebels, and Obama supported them for years until it blew up in their face in the form of the Islamic State, the caliphate that was crazy propaganda from the Bush years, Osama bin Laden's wildest dream that could have never come true. And it was Bush who made Western Iraq a lawless open territory, and it was Obama who supported them in Syria until it blew up into the Islamic State, which erased the border between Iraq and Syria, created a whole new state between them. That then necessitated Obama launching Iraq War 3, 2014 through 17, in order to again take the side of the Shia they wished they hadn't fought Iraq War 2 for, in order to destroy the Islamic State and rouse them back out again. And so that's the name of America's frustration in the Middle East. Iraq War 2, George W. Bush's war, was a massive own goal for the other side. And they've been supporting Bin Ladenite terrorists trying to make up for that fact ever since. So that's why when you scratch your head and you go, why does Obama support terrorists in Syria? The answer is not because he's a secret Muslim, Black Panther, born in Kenya and all this stuff. It's that he's George W. Bush. This is George W. Bush's policy. It is, oops, the redirection to fix our mistake. And, and of course, that's... <laughs> A 10 times worse thing to do, right? You, you artificially empower your regional adversary, Iran, and then sort of fix that. You side with your actual enemy, Al-Qaeda? Yep. So this was, and, and it's, we have to be clear that this was Osama bin Laden's goal, right? Is that? Well, I don't think he ever could have imagined that America was going to do everything that they've done. I mean, this is, yes, and to get to the, the very core of it, what he wanted was to replicate the war in Afghanistan. He wanted America to invade Afghanistan. He wanted it to be like when the Soviets did. And he wanted to replicate the same effort that the Americans backed, the Americans and the Saudis backed in the 1980s to bog down and bleed the Soviet empire to bankruptcy and destruction, which worked. I mean, Afghanistan was one of the straws that broke the camel's back in terms of destroying not just Soviet power, but their entire empire it fell apart and ceased to exist uh, right at, you know, in 1989 as the war was, as they were pulling out of Afghanistan, their entire thing was disintegrating in Eastern Europe and in Southern Asia. And uh, so bin Laden wanted to do that to us. And what's funny is, of course, the Americans helped them because they they deliberately were trying to replicate 
what they had essentially done to themselves in Vietnam, which I guess they probably saw as the Russians somehow doing it to them, baiting them into a long-term losing, extremely expensive civil war that disrupts the society back home and is just a quagmire that you end up losing anyway. And they said, look, let's instead of containing the Soviet Union, let's bait them into overexpansion. And let's back the Bin Ladenites against them all through the 1980s. And then, so Bin Laden just said, well, we're going to replicate that to you. And which is hilarious because if the Americans knew that this is giving the Soviets their own Vietnam, then what does it mean Then when we do it to ourselves after that? <laughs> we're giving ourselves our own Vietnam again. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what Bin Laden wanted. Now to the rest of the Middle East, taking out secular Saddam Hussein. And secular Muammar Gaddafi and, you know, this horrible attempt, it it wasn't a full regime change against Bashar al-Assad, but it led to the rise of the Islamic State, uh, was this drastic consequence of their kind of half regime change effort against Assad in Syria. Um, Their war in Yemen, which I guess we'll still get to that in a minute, but that war has greatly empowered al-Qaeda in order, you know, as America has taken their side against the Shiite side there. And so um, this is, you know, Bin Laden died laughing his ass off at us for sure. And that was just at the beginning of 2011. It was right then, that was or, or spring of 2011. It was right as Obama was killing Osama, was right when he took his side in Libya and Syria. And it's been way downhill at rocket speed ever since then. It almost feels like um, America, I mean, not even just the government, but the culture, too, has sort of just forgotten everything. Um, There's this uh, there's this sort of hashtag meme thing. Uh, Vin Armani popularized it um, called the dim age that we've entered this period in human history where everything from, you know, how to handle a virus to how to handle foreign policy to how to just be a human being has sort of fallen by the wayside in favor of mistake after mistake of largely government overreach, but also just sort of the, the, the people calling for this government overreach because they don't know what to do either. Um, I think a, a lot of, a lot of what you were just saying reminded me too of like the, the, that KGB agent, um, Yuri Bezmenov, I think, was uh, he was talking about how, you know, that the USSR wanted to shape the culture of America um, in those interviews after he defected. And it seems like that's a lot of that's coming to pass, too. Well, I mean, no, I don't blame Russia for any of America's social problems at all. I mean, I think that's all a bunch of nonsense. You know, our empire as all empires are, it's a project of national suicide. You know, there's there's a book that's a Bible among conspiracy theorists for good reason. It's got a lot of really great stuff in it, um, kind of revisionist history of the early 20th century called Tragedy and Hope by Carol Quigley, who was Bill Clinton's mentor at Georgetown University. And what he's actually saying in the title of that book is... Um, you know, essentially, it sounds like, you know, a, a point of view that you or I could identify with, at least to a great degree. He's saying, you know, the tragedy is that all great nations succumb to the temptation of imperial overstretch and destruction, 
self-destruction. And that, you know, that's the tragedy. And the hope is that we can learn from history and we can say that actually, you know what, the reason that our country is great is because it's a limited republic and we've got to keep it a limited republic in order to keep it great. And we've got to be, you know, prudent and wise and restrained and conservative in our our exercise of power. Just because we have wealth doesn't mean we should build a world army. In fact, we have to borrow the money to build our world army. You might have noticed. Uh, we can't really afford it anyway. But just because it appears we can afford it doesn't mean that we should stretch ourselves to the nth degree. Because this is what happens. And um, you know, this is part of the big crack up of America. Just think if we didn't have the boom and the bust cycle that caused a massive crash in '99 and 2000, and the other massive crash of 2008 and the the next one that's coming we didn't have all this massive price inflation this whole time and we hadn't wasted nearly seven trillion dollars on the wars on terrorism and think about it's not just the seven right it's all the opportunity costs that seven trillion dollars invested into providing goods and services to people all those brilliant scientists in the basement of the pentagon designing weapons all laid off and having to go get real jobs providing goods and services to people in the marketplace and improving real wealth for real people instead of pissing all of this, you know, dollar wealth and intellectual wealth and time spent and all of these other things on this absolutely worthless project. It's the worst thing about our country and it's the cause of so much of what's wrong with our country here at home. And you're right that people don't pay attention to it. And that's really unfortunate because it is the name of what ails us. You know, empire is murder-suicide. Simple as that. Just like our enemies. Murder-suicide. I think it I think it makes a... It's telling that, you know, I mean, the stuff that we've been focusing on this year, the COVID, the social distancing, the, the lockdowns, the quarantining, all of that, um, came directly out of George W. Bush's Homeland Security Department. I mean, it's it's not like... It's not like these things aren't connected. The economy is connected to foreign policy, and now foreign policy is even related to pandemic mitigation. I mean, it's it's all of a piece, and it's all kind of a disaster. Yeah, it's, um, I think it's absolutely right. And, uh, you know, it's also a big part of the partisan divide. I mean, there's always been a big left-right split in this kind of deal anyway. But you look at how alike Al Gore and George W. Bush were in 2000, you know, but the split over Iraq War II and then over the torture just ratcheted up the partisan divide in this country so much. And, you know, it hasn't gone back since then. There are plenty of other factors involved in that, of course, in the culture war and everything else. But, uh, and I'm not sure how old you are and how well you remember this at the time, but the way, or for your audience either, but essentially the way it was was the right half of America and and then some, because they wanted to believe, believe that America was defending itself from the Al Qaeda terrorists who attacked us by attacking Iraq, and that Saddam Hussein had done it, and now we were going to teach him a lesson, and they could not understand, like just how big of a coward and a wimp and a hippie and a commie and a homo can you be to oppose going and defending America from the evil Saddam Hussein who attacked us on 
You cowards, you wimps, you traitors, you bunch of Jane Fondas. Imagine 150 million of our fellow Americans who can't be bothered to think that we should even have the right to defend ourselves, right? And then the other 150 million Americans were saying, no, you stupid idiot, Saddam didn't do 9-11. You dumb, gullible bastards. How could you be so dumb that you can't tell the difference between the guy with the beard and the guy with the mustache, huh? And then... You know, and they never did talk to each other at all. And of course, the right wingers were the ones who were completely wrong. But they could they could just never accept the cowardice, essentially the treachery of the entire left half of the country based on their willing misunderstanding of what was happening and what was at stake and, and why it was happening. And. That's a huge part of why people hate each other this day in this country. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they can't get over that. And even when the right wingers realize that, like, ah, geez, maybe we shouldn't have done that. They still didn't say, man, I really was a dick to my next door neighbor who was the only one on the block who actually knew what he was talking about back then. I should go apologize to him, huh? Or or their cousin or their daughter who they never talked to again or, you know, this kind of thing. Um, it's every, every president since, uh, since Bush too, that the opposing side has just been convinced that he was going to declare martial law and not step down after the election. Yeah. Uh, and they used to say that about Bill Clinton too. I used to say that about Bill Clinton. I was a kook in the nineties I learned my lesson from that, that the alarmist stuff really never happens. Yeah. Iraq war two was sort of my, my first major political thing. And being that I was anti-war, I was on the left, uh, and I kind of centered out and then went the libertarian route around 08. Yeah, it would have been 08 because that's when Ron Paul was running. Um, okay, so let's get back to let's get back to the current state. Um, so we've got these we've got these alliances that are based on political uh, more more on politics than on religion, obviously. Although they are kind of uh, sectarian, just for convenience's sake. Um, you wanted to get back to Yemen which is probably the biggest humanitarian crisis going on in the world today. So how did that start and where is it now? Yeah. All right. So here's the very fast forward version. Uh, Everybody picture the Arabian Peninsula. It's tilted towards the Northwest, right? But we're talking about the Southwest corner of the thing there um, at the gates of the Red Sea across from the Horn of Africa, right? Okay. So in 2009, Obama comes to power and he starts a drone war, CIA Air Force drone war against AQAP. That's Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And they are real ass Al-Qaeda guys. They helped coordinate the 9-11 attack. They bombed the USS Cole. They killed Americans in 1995 at the National Guard Training Center in Saudi Arabia. Um, and they've done a lot of attacks since then, too. So they're not just like some fake excuse to fight. They're real bad guys. But anyway, so they fought this terrible counterproductive drone war that only grew Al-Qaeda more and more because a 500-pound bomb from a drone, true, it's not the Marine Corps or the 3rd Infantry Division marching through your town, blowing everything to hell, but it's still not a scalpel, as they say. It's a 500-pound bomb, and it kills innocent people and uh, you know, by the dozens and hundreds and thousands, and it recruits new people to the other side. Okay, step two is they had to bribe the dictator of the country, a guy named uh, Abdullah Saleh, 
to allow them to do this. And they bribed him with a bunch of money and a bunch of guns. Well, what did he do? He took the Al-Qaeda guys and the Muslim Brotherhood guys, and he launched a war against a group of Shiites in the north of the country called the Houthis. Now, they're not the same kind of Shiites in the same tradition as the Iranians. And they don't believe in religious rule, and they don't believe in the 12th Imam at the end of the world and the this kind of faction um, that you have of belief in in Persia and in Iraq. Uh, they're called Zaidi Shiites, and they have, they're have uh, comparable much more to Sunnis and pray right next to them and, you know, essentially have uh, gotten by and lived in peace in Yemen, at least on a sectarian basis for a very long time. But so he attacks them over and over, Salah does, over and over, and he loses six times, six different little mini wars against the Houthis. And every time he attacks them, it backfires, and they just get more and more powerful um, as they resist him. And in fact, he was kind of playing a double game and giving them weapons to kill the Muslim Brotherhood guys that he was supporting against them because, yeah, Yemeni politics are a lot like American politics, you can tell, because uh, they were getting a little too big for their britches, too. Um, it just is the same as he's using al-Qaeda and helping them at the same time he's allowing Obama to bomb them. All right. Then the Arab Spring breaks out in 2011. And all across the region, people are protesting against their dictatorships and basically all factions descend on the capital of Sana'a and demand this guy's ouster. And that's the Southern Socialist and I don't know if the jihadists actually showed up in the square or not, um, but they certainly were against him too. The Muslim Brotherhood, Al-Islam uh, Party, and the Houthis as well, and whoever else, all said, this guy's gotta go. And there were two assassination attempts, and on the second one he was really wounded and had to go convalesce in Saudi. And at that point, the Saudis and Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, intervened and pushed him aside and made his vice president, a guy named Hadi. I promise this is going to be the short, fast version, right? They made his um, vice president, Hadi, the new president. And uh, and push Salah aside. Well, Salah's no George Washington or Cincinnati, right? He didn't go retire to his farm. He took his army with him, and he went and made an alliance with the Houthis in the north. It turns out he's not a Houthi, which is a political designation, a tribal and, and family and political designation, but he is a Zaidi Shiite. And so it turns out that he was able to turn around and make an alliance with his old enemies, and he brought like two-thirds or more of the army with him. And meanwhile, Hillary Clinton held a, an election where I swear to God, you can look it up on Google Images, the ballot uh, for the hottie election. There's one man's name and picture and oval to fill in on the ballot. And there's no one else running against him. And she declared this was the invention of democracy for the people of Yemen. And aren't they grateful? And then it turned out, of course, that Hadi was a terrible dictator and, you know, did all kinds of things to piss everybody off and including picked a fight with the Houthis. And so at the end of 2014, the Houthi Salah Alliance marched down from the north and sacked the capital city and drove um, the dictator, because frankly, he never even stood for election again, as fake as that first election was. He, you know, stayed in office past his time and everything. Well, they just came and drove him right out of power and they seized power. Uh, the Houthi uh, Salah coalition did at the end of 2014 and drove him, and beginning of 2015, drove him down to the southern city of Aden, where the coal was bombed, remember? The port city of Aden. And then eventually drove him all the way out of the country to Saudi Arabia, where he sits in a hotel room on house arrest ever since. 
uh, basically. And whenever you read in the press, the government of Yemen, they're talking about this idiot and his friends in their hotel in Riyadh, right, who haven't even been in the country in years and are, in fact, not the government at all. Um, but um, so here's the most important thing about this story is that as this happened, Central Command said, hey, you know what's about these Houthis being Shiites is that the Al-Qaeda guys want to kill them. So maybe we can ally with them against Al-Qaeda. So they did. And they started funneling intelligence to the Houthis to use to target and kill Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. And this was published in the Wall Street Journal in January. I'm almost certain it's the 28th. Uh, January the 28th, uh, 2015. Check me on that, but it's definitely January 2015. And also Barbara Slavin wrote it up in Al Monitor, and she is a member of the Atlantic Council, and and um, I like her. She's a good reporter. She's bad on some things, but I've interviewed her many times. I think she's great on Iran. Well, she's very good on Iran and, and a lot of stuff. She's a, a really smart lady. And she wrote this thing about how Michael Vickers came to the Atlantic Council, and he was the Deputy Secretary of Defense for Intelligence, and a guy who essentially ran the military side of the drone war. And he came, and at the Atlantic Council, he explained, we've got a new alliance with the Houthis. We're passing them intelligence to use to kill Al-Qaeda. Well, James, two months later, Obama stabbed the Houthis in the back and took Al-Qaeda's side against them. Because the Saudis were mad as hell that this group of Houthis had taken over the capital city. And, in fact, even Obama admitted on camera that the Iranians warned their friends, the Houthis, not their sock puppets, you know, um, but their friends, the Houthis, not to take the capital city. That you're going to provoke such a reaction out of the Saudis, it'll probably start a war. Don't do it. And they did it anyway which just goes to show that they're not the sock puppets of the Iranians right there. Um, and, uh, but anyway, so they, Obama, because the Saudis wanted to start the war, Obama went along with it. And he took, a, not just in effect, he quite literally took Al-Qaeda's side. They are a major part of the American, Saudi, United Arab Emirates, Al-Qaeda coalition in war against the Shiite Houthis from the north. And all that took place within the Obama years. Within six years, this whole change went. Uh, this policy blowing up in his face and then him absolutely making the wrong decision, taking the wrong side. And he fought the war for two years. From It was in 2015, March 2015 is when they started it. So um, he fought it for two years and Trump's continued it for four more. It's now been six years of this war. And the thing of it is, they're not one inch closer to putting Hadi back in power, although that's still allegedly the goal of the war. And James, they've killed hundreds of thousands of people. What's the reason and, for what's the reason for appeasing Saudi Arabia? Well, at the time, they explained to the New York Times that they knew, and this is, you know, not a scoop. This was like an official press release type of a news story in the New York Times, you know, based on 14 administrative, sorry, somebody's at my door, um, based on uh, 17 administration officials, you know, speaking to us on the record and off the record kind of thing, uh, one of those stories. And they said that they knew that the war would be, in their words, um, long, bloody, and indecisive 
is what the Obama people said they knew the war would be. And think about what that means. I mean, first of all, bloody means, yeah, a lot of people are going to be killed to death in this thing. It's not a game. It's a war. And then that it's going to be it's going to take a long time and it's going to be indecisive are are both you know matters of recognition that they don't even know what they're fighting for. They wouldn't even know how to define a state of victory for you because they can't even conceive of what it might look like. They're just doing this, as they said in the same article, in the same paragraph. They knew it would be long, bloody, and indecisive, but they had to do it to placate the Saudis. Quote, unquote, placate the Saudis. And why? Because the Saudis were anxious because Obama was signing the nuclear deal with Iran. But the nuclear deal, all it did was lock down the Iranian civilian nuclear program far more than ever before. And so... If you were like a general in the Saudi army, sounds like a good deal, right? You're securing our interests. You're taking a civilian program that was already safeguarded, and now you're double extra safeguarding it to make sure that they're not diverting any part of their program to a military nuclear program, right? But that wasn't their concern, right? Iran was never making nukes. Everybody knows that. The whole threat of an Iranian nuclear weapon is a hoax. It's always been a hoax. And so that's why they weren't placated by the nuclear deal. They were upset by the nuclear deal. They needed to be placated because of the nuclear deal. Why? Because it took the threat of war with Iran off the table. And more importantly, it took the possibility of the end of the Cold War with Iran on the table. That maybe America would go back to the battle days of of preferring the Persians to the Arabs and might tilt back toward Iran. Now, if these idiots knew anything about American politics, they would know that Barack Obama had no intention of doing any such thing, nor did he have the 10 gazillion dollars worth of political capital that it would have taken to make such a switch in American strategy in the Middle East. We're now switching entirely over to the Shiite Crescent Alliance side? No. No way that was going to happen. So that was a ridiculous fear of theirs. And instead of the Obama people telling them, man, don't worry. Everybody knows the Americans are the Saudi slaves. We'll do whatever you say at all times, including back Al-Qaeda in three different wars. What do we care? Don't worry. Instead of that, they said, okay, we'll back Al-Qaeda again. (laughs) Let's do it again. They need to be placated. Let's placate them. And then they launched a war that amounts to a genocide because the Saudi, you know, the Americans are leading from behind as the Obama people called it. It's our planes. We sell them and our bombs and also American and especially British, um, you know, military and civilian Uh, employees, contractors, and government employees over there taking care of all of the logistics and the maintenance and the care and feeding of all of their planes and selling them all of the weapons they need and making sure to essentially enable every bit of the war that the Saudis from the very beginning have been waging against the civilian population of the country, especially in the north. And they have made it a deliberate point. And this is all illegal. And for the Americans to be participating in this is absolutely war crimes. It's against the law, technically, never mind morally. Um, And Obama and Trump's State Department lawyers have written up memos about how they're afraid they could go to prison for abetting this. Because what the Saudis do is they bomb the food resources, 
the farms, the silos, the flocks of sheep in the fields and all the crops and the irrigation systems. They bomb the trucks, you know, the farm trucks and everything for distributing food. They bomb the marketplaces. They bomb the waterworks, the electricity, the sewage, the hospitals, including when there's massive cholera outbreaks, the worst outbreaks of cholera in modern recorded history. They bomb the cholera hospitals. They bomb funerals. They bomb horses in their stables. They bomb fishermen, uh, you know, just offshore. It's a deliberate medieval siege campaign. They have a full blockade, close down their airports, and close their seaports, except to, you know, bare amounts of humanitarian aid. And for years, you know, the port of Hodeida was, com- was closed completely at the hands of the Saudis and the American Navy. After all, helping them enforce the blockade. The USA rules the seven seas. There's no question about that. This entire project is an American project and a British one, along with the Saudis and the UAE there. And and back to the treason part of this genocidal war is that Al-Qaeda for a time took over like five towns, including a major port town like it wasn't Aden but it was like the second biggest port town on the Arabian Sea coast there and uh, Mutwala something like that I'm sorry I need to memorize how to pronounce that right Um, Mukwala maybe and and like four or five more towns huge tax bases for years Um, and then you know seized all military bases and their armories and all of these things and at one point um, I guess during late Obama and, and early Trump, they actually started killing Al-Qaeda guys again, even at the same time they're fighting for them. They started doing a few drone strikes and special operations missions against the worst AQAP guys. Um, and then so what they do? They all just join the UAE's militia army on the ground in order to have protection from the UAE from American drones. And so... When you you know talk about, they say that the UAE withdrew their army. Yeah, but they kept their mercenary force, which is made up of a bunch of Sudanese child soldiers, with, i.e. slaves, and a bunch of Al-Qaeda fighters who joined the UAE's militia so that America wouldn't hit them with drones. And now they're driving around in American MRAP armored vehicles and taking them to battle, not just you know joyriding in them. The UAE gave them these armored vehicles and American weapons. It's not like ISIS seizing them from the armories. These were given to them by the UAE to use in battle against the Houthis. And why? Because the Houthis aren't even really the sock puppets of Iran because they're, because they're Shiites and because they're friends with Iran. So that means supposedly we're just supposed to consider them, you know, like Hezbollah, essentially Iran's 51st state, and, you know, with Iran's interests in mind and all of these things, which is just really not true. And if anything, you know, whatever degree of truth is there is to it in terms of Iranian training, advice, financing, and they say giving them 3D printers to help them make their drones and stuff like this. This is all self-fulfilling prophecy stuff anyway. Right. This is all, you know, them being driven further and further into the Iranians arms this whole time. Uh, just like the same thing with Bashar al-Assad. We're trying to remove Iran's ally in Syria, and all they did was drive him from being an ally of Iran into a full-scale dependent of Iran. And they seem to be trying to do the same thing in Yemen just so they can justify what they've been doing for six years. 
And I'm here to tell you, man, the the uh, UN says uh, as of last year, and there's 230,000 people dead. And, um, you know, now two years ago, Save the Children did a study that said 85,000 children had died. And that includes, you know, that's not all shot and bomb, but that includes, you know, dying of deprivation of this war. Um, essentially starving to death, dying of, of easily treatable diseases and so forth. And it's a genocide. And what do you call it when one nation deliberately, or a group of nations, deliberately inflict a famine on another nation? If Iran was doing what we're doing to Yemen, it would be the excuse to bomb them. Mm-hmm. So is the... Is the is the need to placate the Saudis then? I mean, does it does it all just come down to the customers always right, or is it uh, they they don't want OPEC to go off the dollar standard, or what's the what's the deal there? Why 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 even why even placate Saudi in the in the to start out to begin with? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think that yeah, you're right that probably the bottom line is they buy so much American debt and they denominate all their oil in U.S. dollars, which you know helps to force the rest of the world to follow suit when it mm-hmm. comes to oil sales, which, you know, creates an artificial demand for American dollars in the world. Um, you know, I'm no, you know, mathematician or econometician or nothing like that, so I don't know just how dependent America really is on this. I get the idea that American politicians don't really understand economics very well either. Mm. And to them, they think that this is absolutely essential when really it's not. That we could absolutely do without this and figure out a better way to proceed. Um, but of course, you know, you also have the fact that the Saudi oil empire is the Rockefeller world empire is what Murray Rothbard used to call it. It's, you know, this is Exxon, Standard Oil of New Jersey. Yeah. is essentially the most powerful corporation in the world. They're very close to, you know, one of the most powerful corporations in the world. And they are partners with the Saudis. And even after they nationalized everything, they're still, you know, Aramco is still, you know, very politically connected and powerful Americans are invested in um, not just Aramco, but God knows what different oil interests all up and down that Gulf. And so, you know, like they used to say, what's good for GM is good for America. You know, yeah. what's good for my company is good for this country. How do you know? Trust me. <laughs> right? I, I say it's important. OK, well, uh, I don't know why the rest of us should believe in that, um, that this is in any way necessary. And and for the cost of all of our souls, you know, that we're deliberately killing 100,000 children in order that some sheik can be placated it's tragic it's and it's i mean it just speaks to the how how horrible it is when you know governments try to steer just anything steer markets steer society it all i mean it all boils down to the same thing you know i mean i think you're right the thirst for power and the thirst for for and look at the 1990s and the you know this whole the we talked about the boom and bust but the deindustrialization of the country they didn't say listen the free market is going to you know we've had a lot of protectionism and we need to wind this protectionism down and the free market is going to see so, to some changes it wasn't like that yeah. it was you know if you remember it was Newt Gingrich 
uh, was uh, citing the Tofflers who wrote this book, The Third Wave, and about how now what we're going to do is instead of making stuff, we're just going to trade information. It's going to be the information age. We're going to have the information economy. And it wasn't, you know, let us sit back and watch as the page of history turns and market forces decide to do this or that thing it was a deliberate program essentially to say isn't it an exciting thing that we're going to deindustrialize? we'll let the chinese make everything and then we'll all just sit around on computers all day well people who sit around on computers all day thought that that made sense but they were really helping to disemploy millions of essentially high school educated americans with decent middle class jobs um, you know, paying jobs that they had in manufacturing. And they instituted this massive change that was coming anyway, but they put like an Acme rocket pack on its back without any sense of how this is going to affect the people of the country because they didn't really care. <laughs> you know, they, you know, they're not from the Rust Belt, the people who run Washington, D.C. They don't even know why it's called that. Why do they call themselves the Rust Belt? Well, because you <laughs> deindustrialized all their factories and they rusted, <laughs> you know, yeah. but they don't even know. So, um, yeah, I mean, and, and look, Sheldon Richmond points out that robots have taken a lot more jobs than the Chinese or the Mexicans. And a lot of factories went to Mexico, too. And, and, and you know, robots get more and more advanced all the time. And these things are going to change. But the change, it didn't just come. It was forced in many ways on people who absolutely were not ready. You know, and Biden even said our new president, Biden, had told the coal miners of West Virginia, learn to code. Really, yeah. you learned to code, right? Like Joe Biden's <laughs> ever had a job in his life. That's a. I think that's also where libertarians, a lot of libertarians, tend to go wrong too. Is you know, I, and I, I have a feeling it's probably like just sort of, uh, we've been brainwashed by Ayn Rand, and you know, the idea that these huge mega corporations are sort of the apotheosis and um, ideal of what uh, free markets look like. And that's not the case at all. I mean, they're, they're... yeah, forget Ayn Rand, read Rothbard. I mean, Rothbard will show where progressivism is a right wing plot. You know, essentially, you know, what we consider to be Hillary Clinton type regulatory liberalism is what the corporate state always wanted. If if big business was libertarian, then why don't they support libertarians? Yeah, you would think that there would be more more libertarian uh, policies being enacted. All right, so... Right. No, they uh, want money for free, just like everybody, only yeah. they're in the position to get it. So, yep. And this is the name of the game when we talk about this foreign empire. You know, the Israelis have a hell of a lot of influence, and so do the Saudis. But at the end of the day, it's Lockheed and Boeing and General Dynamics and uh, Raytheon... And, um, you know, I'm tipping my tongue. I forgot the the next worst, most guilty uh, players in this. But they have such a vested interest. And the military services themselves have such a vested interest in keeping this machine mm -hmm. going. You know, there's a headline at, at uh, the New York Times from yesterday. I'm almost certain it was from yesterday. That said, a new report is out to help uh, give advice to NATO to find relevance going into the new decade. And they have no idea how embarrassing this should be. 
They have no idea how just absolutely naked and ridiculous that they look standing there saying, we are the world's greatest military alliance and we have no reason for existing at all. We have no enemies anywhere in the world. And then read the article. And what does it say? It says, well, they settled on China. That's right. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization is now (laughs) going to take on the Far East. And the reason why? Money. So they can steal money from you. That's why. So that they don't have to get real jobs. That's why. That search for relevance is sort of the... That's the that's the job of a bureaucracy. I mean, you know, once once their once their job's done, whatever their stated goal was, uh, they they have to they have to find some reason to continue in existence. So I guess it makes sense. Yep. Um, I'd like to ask you. I'd like to ask you about Joe Biden. Uh, he. So I, you know, I mean, I've always known Biden as you know the 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 sort of moderate, the the dove of the Obama administration. He was the voice of reason in the room. Um, what's, uh, what gives there? Why, why should we be so worried about him from a foreign policy standpoint? Well, I mean, that is partially true. Um, you know, Joe Biden, well, first of all, he was a huge and terrible hawk on Iraq. And in fact, he bears more responsibility for that war than John McCain, because John McCain probably was the worst Iraq hawk in the Senate at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. But he was in the minority. And Joe Biden was the chairman of the Foreign Relations Committee. And, you know, he's a dummy in some ways, but he knows about things, right? He's not just like Donald Trump, total blowhard, watches TV all day and doesn't know or care about anything. Joe Biden is somewhat expert on some issues. Yeah, you know? well, you don't spend 50 and, years doing something and not not pick up a little bit of something. Right. And... And he's interested and and he's a self-important enough guy that he thinks that he has the answer for everything. Um, And so not only did he want to invade Iraq, but he had a plan. He wanted to split it in three. Never mind how many people have to die for being on the wrong side of the lines. And never mind the fact that this is what Tehran wanted to split it in three as long as they get the capital city. But anyway... um, you know, this is essentially Joe Biden is that kind of a self-important guy that he thinks he knows what to do. And frankly, other than Dick Cheney and Paul Wolfowitz and I guess Rumsfeld, I would say that Joe Biden was the man most responsible for starting Iraq War II. And not only that, he could have stopped it all by himself. He was the chair of the Foreign Relations Committee, and he wasn't just some dupe. He knew better. And if he wanted to fight about this, and if he wanted to hold up the authorization resolution, and if he wanted to have real experts like Scott Ritter come in there and absolutely demolish the case for war, he could have done that. He'd have been a real hero for stopping that war. And instead, he decided that it was going to be good politics to go along with W. Bush and starting a war against a country that never threatened us, never attacked us, would never even have the capability to dream on their worst sick fevered day of taking on the United States of America, for God's sake. You might as well say, yeah, James Gentleman is about to declare war against America and take him on. Nuh-uh. You know, that's how believable this lie was. Um, but anyway, Biden went along with that and and pushed it. 
and was, you know, extremely, you know, uh, supportive of it. And after the war, he was supportive of it. And he condemned people who knew better and said better and said that you don't know. And I stand by my vote. Still, was the right thing to do for years. And uh, he didn't even start to get good on Iraq War II until 2006 and seven. He opposed the surge. And so we should just be finding a way to get out of there. But why? I mean, the surge was accomplishing his goal, dividing the country completely into three, kicking the last of the Sunnis out of the predominantly Shiite areas and vice versa so that they could divide the country and Iran could run off with the East. Isn't that what you always wanted, Joe? What's the problem? And I think the problem there is, okay, he knew a little something about it, but he didn't know enough about it. You know, Rumsfeld too. In fact, remember after the election of 2006, when the Democrats took the House and the Senate, um, because they had won the Senate back in 04, um, but when they lost it in 06, um, they fired Rumsfeld. Well, Rumsfeld wanted to end the war. Rumsfeld, in fact, you couldn't get him to say, geez, we've done, we leaned a little too much this way and we don't want to lean that way, so let's just quit. In any kind of specific detail, he would say, it's time to take the training wheels off and see if they can ride this democracy bike by themselves. It's basically like a lazy, fat person on welfare and they've been on welfare for too long and we're disincentivizing them to do the work themselves. And this kind of, well, that was why they fired him. And then it was so ironic because then they brought in, you know, here's Rumsfeld, the friend of the neocons. They got rid of him and they brought in Robert Gates, who was the friend of Bush the father and um, had been the former director of the CIA and was close with Bush and Baker and Scowcroft. And he came in to be the adult supervision. What he do? He implemented the neocon plan to double the war. Sorry, I'm off on a tangent. I just hate these guys all so much. Yeah. But anyway, at that point, Biden, you know, started getting less worse and... um and then here's the real thing of it is he killed his own son, Bo. His son, Bo, died of Iraq War II illness, yeah. right? Gulf War II illness. And that is the burn pit exposure caused his brain cancer. It's almost certain. He was stationed at the Mosul Dam. So it's not a combat death. I'm not trying to equate him with a guy that got blown up by a bomb or sniped or something like that. But um, he, you know, to Joe Biden, it was an Iraq War death. And I don't think he knew. I forget now. I should go back and look. I forget how I know this, but I read somewhere that it wasn't until Joseph Hickman wrote his book, The Burn Pits, and there's a whole chapter in there on Bo Biden, and somebody finally brought that to Biden's attention, that, hey, there's this book about the burn pits, has a whole chapter about Bo, and he read that, and he finally got it through his thick skull that, yeah, he killed his good son, you know, left the crackhead scumbag son behind, and... um. And so I think that really had an effect on him. And um, I guess it was still even before that, um, maybe just the absolute catastrophe of Iraq War II led him to oppose the war in Libya, they say. And I don't know what he did about Syria. I know that there's one very good quote of him blaming everything on our allies, um, but then essentially telling the truth about exactly what happened. Uh, trying to to deny any responsibility on Obama in his own behalf, but he essentially tells the same story I told, that our allies, the Turks, the Qataris, the Saudis, uh, ended up building up the Islamic State. And now we have to go and destroy it. And, and he told that. Anybody can type in Biden, Harvard, ISIS, and sit there and watch him tell the whole story. And if only he says, yeah, 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 and 
me and Barack and John Brennan and the CIA were in on it all along, too, then it would be complete and true. Um, but it's almost a, a, a whole truth there as he tells that story. Um, but then, you know, he's hired all hawks already, right? He's got yeah. Blinken is going to be his uh, secretary of state. And uh, Sullivan is going to be his national security advisor and probably Flournoy, or I'm not sure who yet, is going to be the secretary of defense. And they're just all terrible on everything. And he is becoming more and more a befuddled old man every day, which means his presidency is going to be very much like Ronald Reagan's, where, you know, the chief of staff runs everything and they only come to him when they have to break the most dire tie that they can't resolve themselves between the different, uh, you know, government departments. Mm -hmm. But most of the time he's going to be napping and not in charge and People like Jake Sullivan are going to be calling the shots. And by the way, Jake Sullivan, and this is meaningful. I don't just bring it up like trivia. This is a thing. He wrote in an email to Hillary Clinton in February of 2012. Hey, boss, AQ is on our side in Syria. Right. Which is the exact same thing as saying we are on Al Qaeda's side in Syria. And it was, and then attached was a Reuters article about how Ayman al-Zawahiri, the leader of Al-Qaeda, endorsed the revolution against Assad. Okay, real quick, uh, I know, I know you've got a, you've got interviews probably booked all day. Um, I got eight minutes. Okay, great. Uh, real quick, so Victoria Nuland um, installed the leader of Ukraine back during the Obama administration, and we know that. Joe Biden and Hunter Biden have these these crazy business dealings in Ukraine. What what's going to be happening with Ukraine in the next couple of years? Well, I mean, I sure hope they don't try to bring them into NATO. I mean, they they just might, and that could cause a war with Russia. Yeah. Um, we'll get back to the the Hunter Biden stuff in a second, but um, back in early Obama, it might have even been Bush years. Man, I'm sorry. Uh, it may have been Bush years because I think it was Burns. I think it was Nicholas Burns. I, I'm sorry. I have to go back and check. No, it's fine. But anyway, anybody can find this. It's on it's on WikiLeaks. It's a State Department cable uh, leaked by uh, Chelsea Manning. And the title is Nyet Means Nyet. And it was the American ambassador met with Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister. And he said, listen... You're not bringing Ukraine into NATO. I think you know that we could have our entire army in Kiev in two weeks. And this is our line. Don't cross it. Tell the bosses that I mean what I say when I say this. Capiche? And the ambassador said, okay, and wrote up this memo. If we try to bring Ukraine into NATO, Russia will invade and conquer Ukraine. They absolutely will not allow that to happen. Now, you heard him, James. Nyet means nyet. Good enough for me. Yeah. Uh, is that good enough for the Biden team? I don't know, man. I really don't know what they're going to do with that. I mean, their idea is that whatever they do is peace and security. If it causes the Third World War, then that's somebody else's fault. Yeah. You know, um, what they do is always right because they're the ones who are doing it. No different than a bunch of George W. Bushites, you know, 
uh, and with no more intelligence behind their decisions. And so back to the, the revolution, I mean, you brought up Robert Kagan's wife, Victoria Newland. She was essentially the ambassador to the EU at the time, the deputy assistant secretary of state for, or maybe not deputy, assistant secretary of state for European affairs, um, essentially the ambassador to the EU. And she was caught by the Russians and it's published on YouTube. Anybody can look at it. Caught on the phone and listen to it. Anybody caught, uh, anybody can. Uh, caught on the phone with Jeffrey Pyatt, the ambassador to Ukraine. And this is two weeks before the coup. And they're busted plotting the coup. And saying that, yes, we need to get Yatsenyuk uh, will be the new prime minister. And uh, Klitschko, we want to keep him outside the government because he's a great PR guy and he'll help Tanny Bach, who is a Nazi from this Svoboda party. Um, and uh, we'll get these guys to come in and uh, we'll glue this thing together. And, you know, the reason the, the call is famous, of course, is because in the call, Newland uses very undiplomatic language and says, F the EU. And everybody, it's hilarious in a Saturday Night Live ridiculous kind of way um, that the news media all paid attention to that. Oh my goodness, diplomat uses F word. How undiplomatic. Yeah. But As if that's what the was story. she talking about? What was the context? She was saying F the EU because they're taking too long to accomplish this coup d'etat. And so screw the Germans, we're going to go and we're going to get Robert Sari from the United Nations and we're going to get the vice president, Joe Biden, to glue this thing together and get it done before it's too late. So F the EU, that's the context. You might think that the plotting of the coup would be the headline there, but no, the lead got buried. Um but anyway, at least it got some attention at all because she used a bad word. So I don't know, split the difference either way. Um, and then that's right. What happened was they did the coup. That's exactly what happened. And Yats is the guy. He became the new leader. And in the call, they talk about, yeah, we got to do this quick before Putin can react. Well, come on. Well, yeah, he's going to be so distracted by the Sochi Olympics that he's not going to do anything about you doing a coup in Ukraine. And then they did the coup and they threatened publicly. They didn't like make a quick move but they just started talking about kicking the russians out of the sevastopol naval base and the russians who already maintained the lease there and had kept their forces there ever since the fall of the soviet union they just simply left the base and took over the entire peninsula in a coup de main they didn't kill anyone it was not an invasion they were already there they just walked outside and stood on street corners and so this is part of russia again and that was it and it's been part of Russia since uh, the 1780s, and it was only given to Ukraine by Khrushchev, the Soviet premier, in uh, 1954, something like that. And, um, you know, essentially it's Russian territory anyway, supermajority uh, ethnic Russians and, and pro-Russian population anyway. And then the people of the Far East, the pro-Russia-leaning people of the Far East, they refused to recognize the coup government. And so they occupied a bunch of buildings and said, you know, well, we want to secede from you then. And then Kiev launched a war on terrorism against them that Obama backed. And just like in the initial coup, um, there were a bunch of neo-Nazis who completely infested the armed forces and helped to wage this war against the people of the far eastern regions of the country, uh, killed more than 10,000 of them. And by the way, 
when those people tried to secede from Ukraine and join Russia and they held a plebiscite, a referendum and voted, we want to join the Russian Federation. Putin told them no. He could have said, yeah, fine, and grabbed a magic marker and redrawn the border of Russia right there to include the Donbass region of far eastern Ukraine. And he said no. But he helped, he sent special operations forces across to help them defend themselves. But he never invaded. They call it the Russian invasion. He never sent the infantry across and invaded that territory whatsoever. And, you know, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I do have to go in just a couple minutes, but I'll tell you, I wrote a thing. I gave a speech that you can read the transcript of it at antiwar.com and at the Libertarian Institute. It's called The New Cold War with Russia is All America's Fault. And, you know, I tend to understate things when I can. Um, but uh, and it tells the story about this and people can read, especially go to consortiumnews.com and read all of what Robert Perry wrote at the time about this. He was probably the best American journalist on the issue at the time. Uh, Dan McAdams at the Ron Paul Institute, of course, is always great on it. And a lot of other people. Ron himself, of course, too. OK, awesome. Well, thanks, Scott. Do you have anything to plug right now? Um. Well, I have an apology of sorts. My book was supposed to be done a year ago, and I I threw it out and started over again because I just got way too bogged down in the details. I was just overdoing the hell out of it. The long version is 500-something pages, and I just I threw it out, and I started over and cut out a lot, and I've been working really hard on it. And I have a publisher that came to me interested in it. I'm not sure if I'm going to do that or just publish it through my institute again, but I'm I'm trying to get it wrapped up here. And hope to have it done by the very beginning of the Biden years here coming up in the next couple of months. And it's going to be called Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. Well, we're all looking forward to that. And uh, I also hope you get it done at the beginning of the Biden administration and not in another year. But, you know, either way, it's going to be super valuable. And I really appreciate your time today. And uh, thanks for all you do. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, James. All right. Talk to you later. All right. Thanks again to Scott Horton for joining me on episode number 14 of the Urban Agorist podcast. As always, you can find today's show notes at urbanagorist.com slash 14. I'll make sure to include any articles that I can remember from this interview to link to along with Scott's shows, the Libertarian Institute, Scott's books, and everything else that you could possibly need following an interview with Scott Horton. Once again, that's urbanagorist.com slash 14. And I will see you on the next one. Until then, live free. This is the